God, I want to thank you for faithful saints who've walked the road ahead of us. Thank you for a multi-generational church. God forbid that we would ever become a church that targets young people like that's cool. Thank you for our senior adults. Thank you for the faithfulness they've shown us young kids. And thank you that my children love to see brothers and sisters that are 60 years older than them singing the same truths about the same Jesus that will be the same truths unchanging forever. And Lord, I thank you for Charles and Renee. God, would you please heal Renee? And would you sustain her? And Charles, would you help them to sing true songs through bitter tears that may it become what may that they would rest all of their days in the goodness of Jesus and I know their story I know their story isn't unique in that sense that there are so many people in this room who are just broken hearted their home is broken and their hearts are broken and God would it be that you do something in us today that would cause us to see you for who you are in a way that would thrill us and we would say may it be come what may that we would rest all our days in the goodness of Jesus so meet us in your word teach us what you'd have us to learn cause us to be humble before you Lord, I pray for not only us, but I pray for Pastor Monty and the brothers and sisters that are gathered this morning at Orsino, Lord. I pray they'd be thrilled with Jesus. Work in them, I ask, Lord, to the glory of your name. And may we all, as one big family, live with joy and gladness, thinking and believing the best about one another, and joining together as often as we can to sing your praise and looking forward to the day we'll all be gathered around your throne forever singing your praise. And so God, do a work in Mani and Orsino. And Lord, we love you and trust you're doing a work among us today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Continue to pray for one another. We are a church. We are a family. And God is walking with us through hard times, and he is good. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Daniel chapter 4? Daniel chapter 4. And i got to tell you, if I'm crying this early in my sermon, it could get crazy this morning. (laughs) Daniel 4. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study of the book of Daniel. And if you're visiting with us and aren't familiar with the book of Daniel, I do want to give you a little bit of a, a, a context for where we've been in our study. 600 years before Jesus was born, the most powerful man in the world was the Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar. And the book of Daniel begins when Nebuchadnezzar had led the Babylonian army to an invasion of the city of Jerusalem. And when he invaded Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar took a bunch of young people out of that country and he made them captives and he brought them back to the capital city of Babylon, and he basically began to try and indoctrinate them into the way of life 
of the Babylonians. Four of those young men were named Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Four pretty popular names if you've been around church for any amount of time. And throughout our study, what we've seen is that no matter how much pressure Nebuchadnezzar had been placing on them to adopt the pagan worship of Babylon and the godless sinful culture of Babylon, those four young Jewish men had remained faithful to God. And even more than that, what we've seen is that God had been faithful to them. And even last week, we see that over and over again, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, is getting a front row seat to see God work. Last week, we saw Neb threw those three young men into a fiery furnace, and he's sitting there watching what he thinks will be their demise. And what happens is that Jesus shows up, he delivers those three young men miraculously and spares their life. And you find Nebuchadnezzar, even though he is saying all the right things, because he can't deny what he's seeing with his own two eyes, he refuses to change. He continues to be a proud, self-centered man. And that's where we pick up this morning. Chapter 4 meets a man who had lived with a front row seat to see God work, who'd been exposed over and over again to the truth of who God is, who'd remained proud in his heart. And chapter four is a detailed account of how the almighty God humbles the heart of the most powerful man in the entire world. And because there are 37 verses in this chapter, And all of them form the big idea. I'm going to have to just summarize large portions of our text. Even though we usually go verse by verse, I want you to be able to eat lunch today. And so I'm going to summarize some of our text. And even with me doing that, there's so much here. It's going to take us two weeks to work through Daniel chapter 4. And so this is really, you could consider it to be one big sermon over the next two weeks. This is part one of a sermon I have entitled Lessons from a Lunatic King. You're going to want to hang on to your seats. It's a doozy. Daniel chapter four, starting in verse one. Verse one says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. Okay, so this this letter here is a proclamation that Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, has written to all of the people of the earth. It's kind of like if the president of the United States decided to use his influence to do like a a primetime television address. He would want to get his message out to as many people as possible. And that's what Neb is doing here. And what's the message? Well, he's really clear. He tells us very plainly there in verses two and three. He says, I want to show you some signs and wonders that God did in my life that taught me a lesson. Basically, the lesson he says here is that God's kingdom is forever and that his dominion, that's another word for rule, that the rule of God is from generation to generation, okay? So keep this in mind. I'm going to point this out throughout the the text. Five times we will see this is the point of the dream. This is the point of this text 
of Scripture. And the first sign that Nebuchadnezzar mentions in his letter is a dream that he had. Now, this is the second dream that we found that Nebuchadnezzar had from God in the book of Daniel. And just like he did in chapter 2, he's, he's afraid. He freaks out. He doesn't know what the dream means, but he needs to find out. So he gathers the wisest guys in his kingdom together. He says, tell me what my dream means. And just like chapter 2 They can't tell him what the dream means. I don't know why he keeps doing the same things over and over again. I hear that's the definition of insanity, but I don't think it actually is. Anyhow, he then finally gets to the point where he does what he should have done all along. He asks Daniel to come and tell him the interpretation of his dream. Then as you go through the rest of this letter, what you find is verses 8 through 18. He tells Daniel what his dream is. He says, in my dream, I saw this big, beautiful tree that reached up to heaven And it was visible to the whole world. Now, here's the story. I'm not going to go into this very much, but remember where Babylon is. It's the ancient city of what? Of Babel. And remember what Babel is known for. It's the attempt of people in their pride to build a tower up to heaven. And in this dream, you find a tree that actually accomplished what the people of Babel weren't able to accomplish a long time ago. It reaches up to heaven and it's able to be seen throughout the whole world. It's strong, it's mighty, it provides food and shelter for all the animals, he says. But then an angel comes in his dream and tells him that the tree is to be chopped down and chopped up. Only the stump is supposed to remain, and the stump is to be bound with a band of iron and bronze. But then in the middle of this, he's telling the dream, and then the language changes. Look at verse 15 of chapter 4. In the middle of this explanation, he's saying, here's what the dream was. The angel tells me the dream needs to be chopped, or the tree needs to be chopped down. He says, then the angel said, let him, now notice that, let him Be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be among the the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Okay, so stop right there. The angel makes it really clear that he's no longer talking about a tree. He's talking about a person. So you can put the two together. The tree represents a person, a great and mighty person, and that person's going to be cut down, he says. He's going to go crazy for seven periods of time. Most scholars agree that that represents seven years. And the angel makes it really clear that there's a point to this whole exercise. Look at verse 17. The sentence, the sentence of being cut down, of going crazy, being cast out with the animals. It's by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end or for the goal that the living, that all people might know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Okay, stop right there. Here it is now. Here's this truth we now see for the second time in this letter. The whole point of all of it, Nebuchadnezzar says, is that all of the people of the world will know what? That God rules the kingdom of men. He chooses who will be king. And his choice, and this explains a lot in our world, his choice isn't determined by anything deserving about that man who is king. 
In other words, kings are not made kings because they're great. Kings are made kings because God is in control and he chooses to make them kings. And Daniel understands that is the point of the dream. Next week, we're going to look really closely at his response because it gives us some great insight into how we can relate to our leaders, even when it seems like our leaders have lost their minds. So next week, we'll look at that. But let's pick up in verse 24. Verse 24 says this. Daniel is speaking now, and he says, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you. Look at this. Here's it again. Till you know. Till you learn the lesson. That the most high rules the kingdom of men. And gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree... Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you. From that time, you will know that heaven rules. So here you go. The third time in this letter, the central truth of this chapter is repeated. God rules the kingdom of men. Church, who rules the kingdom of men? God. And God is going to teach Nebuchadnezzar that lesson, he says, until he's thoroughly convinced that it's absolutely true. All right, now notice what Neb does next. It is so like quintessential Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered. Now, here's what I think is interesting. Nobody's asking him a question. This guy is so egocentric that he's just up there having a chat with himself, asking questions and answering himself. Cuckoo. And he says this, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Guys, stop right there. This is so insightful. As a matter of fact, we're going to come back to this before we're done today. Over and over again in this book, God is showing up. He's doing miracle after miracle. He's sending message after message to Nebuchadnezzar over and again. We've looked at it through this series. Neb has even given lip service to this truth that God is God and we are not. But here he is so proud. His heart is so hard that he just lets that truth roll off him. It says here, for 12 months, for one whole year, God gives him a chance to humble himself and repent, to humble himself before the Lord, and what happens? Just the opposite. He grows even more proud. He walks around on the roof of his palace, looks out over his city. As a matter of fact, the screens behind me are actually an artist's rendering of the ancient city of Babylon. They're based on the ruins that can still be found about 50 miles south of Baghdad, Iraq. And so those ruins are still there. As a matter of fact, Saddam Hussein and his crazy reign, talk about a lunatic king, tried to rebuild the city of Babylon. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had rebuilt old Babel. As a matter of fact, right there in the center of this picture, there's a big step pyramid that's on the site of the ancient Tower of Babel. What King Nebuchadnezzar did is he erected 
a tower of Babel for himself. He did what his predecessors couldn't do. He's looking out over his kingdom. No doubt, one of the largest structures would have been that old tower of Babel. The other thing was one of the ancient wonders of the world was there in Babylon. It's called the Babylonian Hanging Gardens. It was actually a, a marvel of ancient engineering. They used water inside of this great structure to basically air condition the whole building. So it was the first air conditioned building in the history of the world. Uh, apparently, history tells us that Nebuchadnezzar gave it as a, as a gift to his wife. She'd had hot flashes. It was 110 degrees in Iraq. And so what better gift than to make up a thing called air conditioning? So maybe that wasn't entirely out of his mind. Anyhow, he's looking out over this wonder of wonders, this city filled with blessing and abundance, prosperity, able to do what nobody else had been able to do. As he looks out, his response to what he sees is really insightful. He says, look what I've done by my power. Look what I've done for my glory. Guys, that is an insight into the heart of pride of King Nebuchadnezzar. And that's where we'll come back before we finish this morning. But let's look what God does. He says, enough is enough. Look at verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar. So the real king shows up. All right? To you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. That just means he slept outside all night long and woke up wet from the dew till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Basically, he looked like what every middle school boy would look like if they didn't have a mother. Just a, just a mess, a wreck, right? Long nails, crazy hair, never been washed. Dude loses his mind, right? The most powerful man in the world is wandering aimlessly on the front lawn eating grass, His hair grows long and wild. His nails are like claws more than fingernails. Guys, it almost makes our politicians look sane. (laughs) Almost. Almost. And then once again, I hope you noticed, for the fourth time in this text, we hear the reason for it all. Verse 32 says, he's going to be like this until he knows that God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God is in control, right? Now look at the rest of the story, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. Now notice this. This is really important. His sanity returns. He's back in his right mind the moment he looks up, not in. And his reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever for. And He learned the story. He got the point. His dominion, God's, is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
All the inhabitants of the earth. How many of them? All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. It means that God isn't having to game plan around really powerful people like they pose a threat to his rule. Like when we played in in high school basketball really good teams, we would have to account for their very best player. So our coach would say, you always got to be account for it. You need to know where he is on the floor at any given time. Basically the thing that no team playing us ever had to say about me. You got to account for this guy every moment of the game. He says this, God doesn't have to rule heaven like that. Like he's got to account. Oh man, this king's something. Oh, this president's something. Oh, this politician's something. You got to account for him. He could throw the whole plan into a mess if I don't do something strong about he doesn't account for the inhabitants like that look what it says and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth now look at this and none can stay his hand you know what that means nobody can stop him or say to him what have you done do you know what that means he's not accountable to us you get that right He doesn't have to answer to us. We answer to him. You know why? Because he's God and you're not. And now we have then the fifth time in this text. God rules over the affairs of men. Verse 35 says, he does according to all of his will. In the host of heaven, the inhabitants of earth, no one can stop him. We don't answer to him. Or he doesn't answer to us, we answer to him. And once Nebuchadnezzar realizes that truth, he's immediately restored. It's like, it's not until you understand that truth, he's saying, that you're actually in your right mind. You're living like a crazy man unless you understand that truth. You're out of your mind, he's saying, unless you understand and live. Like that is true. And notice how Nebuchadnezzar ends his letter. Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. Do you notice how these verbs are formed here? Things are being done for him and to him, not by him. Do you see that? Why? Because God's doing something. I was established. Does not say I established myself. And still more greatness was added to me. Something was given to him. Why? Because God does it. He finally sees and embraces. And I believe this actually may represent the real conversion of a lunatic king. That he sees God finally and he lives out and does something as a result. Unlike all the other times he said he believed that God was the most high. Look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The most powerful man in all of the world praises God and he tags on that really important line at the end. God is able to humble everyone who does not humble themselves. All right, so... You guys know, if you've been around here, here's how we study every passage of Scripture. It doesn't matter what I think, right? Would you all agree with that? It doesn't matter what I think? Write me a note for Pastor Appreciation Month and just say, it doesn't matter what you think. All right? That's a real encouragement. That's the truth. 
We want to know what God says, not what I think. So we come to every text and we say, what is this passage saying? What's the main idea of this point? This is one of those passages that it basically shows you right up front. Five times in this passage, you find the big idea of this text. It's the whole reason God does what he does in Nebuchadnezzar. It's the whole reason Nebuchadnezzar writes a letter to the world. It's our big idea for this morning. The big idea for today is this. God is sovereign and will humble those who will not humble themselves. God is sovereign and will humble those who will not humble themselves. Guys, the point of this passage is to convey a message to the entire world, including you and me. And it's about one of the biggest truths there is to know about God. God is sovereign. That word sovereign refers to authority and ability, the authority and ability to do what one wants to do. So, for instance, we use that word sovereign to describe the nations of the world as sovereign states. When we use it that way, we're saying that that government is sovereign. It is the highest authority. It has the ability to decide for itself Everything that goes on, in a sense, inside of that territory and the people who live in it. It's a sovereign state. There's not a higher power that rules over that state than that sovereign government. And when it comes to God, he is absolutely sovereign, church. He has the ability and authority to do anything that pleases him. He's in control of this world, guys, and everything that's in it. He's accomplishing all of his good purposes. Let me just share with you some passages of Scripture that highlight that truth about God. Job 42.2 says this, I know that you can do all things, talking about God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No plan of God's is ever thwarted by the work of people. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heaven. He does all that pleases him. God can do anything that pleases him. He cannot sin because sin does not please him. That's why God cannot lie, but he can do anything that pleases him. Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10 says this, for I am God. Now listen to this. And there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Church, you think the Bible's trying to tell us something about God? You want to know what it is? God is in control. When Isaiah 46 says that he declares the end from the beginning, he's not just saying that he sees the end from the beginning. That's more than just him knowing the future because he explains what he means in that very next phrase. He says, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all of my purpose. From the beginning, God has purposed that certain things would be accomplished by his power. For instance, he purposed that Jesus Christ would come into this world. God's dear son would die on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. That's why Revelation 13, 8 says that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Why? Because God's purposes will stand. And he declares from the beginning the end of what will take place. So God is accomplishing all of his purposes by his sovereign power. And while we're in this place, I want us to press in just a little further and see just how far the Bible takes this truth. 
God's sovereignty is expressed in multiple ways in the scriptures. God's sovereignty, it says in the Bible, incorporates seemingly random events. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says this, the lot is cast into the lap. It's like rolling the dice, seemingly random, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Guys, there are no happenstance, random things, because God is in control. God's sovereignty incorporates seemingly random events. God's sovereignty incorporates natural events. Perhaps there's no section of the Bible that shares this more clearly than the book of Jonah. So I'm just going to show you four things that Jonah tells us about how God rules and is in control of natural events. In Jonah chapter 1 verse 4, it says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. God's in control of weather patterns. He controls rain and wind and storms. Verse 17 of Jonah chapter 1 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. God's in control of fish. Which makes me wonder why he doesn't allow me to catch more. (laughs) Here's the story though, seriously. Uh, Not long ago, my son and I were fishing together. and, And there's a fish we're going after that we missed out on about a year and a half ago. We call him Gus. He was a trophy redfish and Logan was hooked up to him and it was entirely my fault when we went to land him. It's a long story short, but he got off the hook and dad messed up. But anyhow, we've gone after Gus every time and we've struck out every other time, but we've caught some other fish. And Logan caught a great red fish, and as soon as we landed it and got it in our hand, and Dad didn't mess the whole thing up, Logan cries out, praise Jesus. Now, I know that's fun and somewhat funny, but here's the question. Is Logan wrong to praise Jesus? Well, you got to think, what does that mean? It means that either Jesus was at work in that fish getting caught... Because he rules over natural events, or he wasn't at work. And if he wasn't at work, there would be no reason to give him praise. But because he's at work, there's reason to say, praise you, Jesus, because he's in control. Jonah 4, 6 says, now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. He's in control of plant life. Maybe not so much the housewives can't kill house plants, but that's not, no, I'm kidding. He's in charge of plant life. Verse seven says, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, that it withered. He's in control of worms and plants and fish and wind. God is ruling on this earth and he's seemingly at work or he's at work in seemingly random events. He's at work in nature and that's not all. God's sovereignty incorporates even the choices of people. Now listen, church, there is a lot of mystery here and I don't ever even attempt to be able to explain how this works. God God has given men, you and I, have been given by God the ability to make real choices. Any theology that makes men out to be nothing more than robots is not true biblical theology. We are given the will and ability to make real choices, and we are accountable for the choices that we make. The Bible's clear. As a matter of fact, what we're going to see next week is that in light of this truth, Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to repent, to turn away from his sin, because Daniel clearly believes that God is giving Nebuchadnezzar the choice to repent and turn from his sin. Or continue in his pride. God's sovereignty doesn't negate human responsibility. But listen, 
God is so big and so strong and so wise and so sovereign that I can't understand him. And he is somehow able to make the real choices of people completely accomplish his good, perfect, holy plan. You want a good example of that? I'll show you. His name is Jesus. The greatest sin that's ever been committed in the history of this world was the murder of God's own son, the only innocent man to ever live. But listen to what Acts chapter 4 says about the murder of Jesus. Verses 27 and 28 says, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus was murdered by sinful men, and God is going to hold every man accountable for his own sin. I just read it this morning in my devotions in Revelation chapter 20. At the great white throne judgment, the books are opened and men's deeds are accounted for, and we are judged according to the deeds written in those books, the Bible says. God holds every sin and every sinner accountable for those choices of sin. The Bible is also clear that God is deeply grieved by sin. He hates sin. He hates the way it harms the people that he loves. Yet in it all, God is accomplishing his eternal purposes. Why? Because he is the sovereign king who rules in the affairs of men. I can't understand it. I cannot explain it, but God forbid that we would deny it. The Bible is clear that God is sovereign and that's what he wanted to teach Nebuchadnezzar and that's what he wanted to teach us through him. And church, there are so many applications for this truth. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, my prayer is that that truth would wash over you for just a moment and you would hear this undeniable truth that you won't be able to explain to your friends and neighbors or your own heart, but I pray you'll believe God is in control. He isn't worried. And you don't need to be either. God is in control. Government leaders and politicians aren't in control. Listen to me, we've got a a midterm election coming up, and I know the world's losing its mind already. The majority vote of our fellow citizens will not ultimately determine the future of our lives. God will, because God's in control. Now, he will incorporate it, and he will use it, and we have a responsibility to use and leverage And walk in the choices that we make for the glory of God. But God is in control. And let me ask you this. What crazy, scary, out of control thing in your life is threatening to steal your joy or crush your hope today? I know you've got them. What thing did you bring into this place and it is weighing on your mind and you can't do a thing about it? Let me ask you this. How would you feel if you believed that your own heavenly father is good and is in control there and is working out all of his good purposes for you. You're not on plan B for your life because God is in control. He's sovereign. And there's so many applications of that truth, but I don't want to go down those roads just yet this morning. Listen, I want to remind you that the big idea of this text is not simply that the truth is that God is sovereign. The big idea is that God is sovereign and will humble those who won't humble themselves before him. Proud, sinful kings like Nebuchadnezzar will not withstand the rule of God. They are either going to willingly 
and humbly bow before him now, or they will one day bow in his holy presence in the judgment. Listen to Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, talking about Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, pretty much that's covering all the bases, anywhere anyone would be, Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen to me, church. Every king and ruler, every world leader will one day bow before Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you know what that means? It means one day Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin and King Charles will bow before Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. It means that one day Muhammad and Gandhi and Confucius and Joseph Smith will bow before Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. It means one day the person who sinned the most against you, the one who's rebelled against God and lived in defiance their whole life, it means the person who's posed themselves as the enemy of your soul will one day bow before Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just like Nebuchadnezzar. God is showing mercy. He's showing mercy over and over again to wicked men. Wicked men in this world are being given an opportunity to repent. He's given wicked men the chance to bow. But the day of reckoning is coming. And when it comes, every knee will bow before Jesus Christ as Lord. To the glory of God the Father. All will be well, church. It will end to the glory of his name and the good of his people. And before we wrap up, there's a question that we should be asking. And it's not how will God humble the world leaders of the recognized kingdom? That's not the question. The question we should be asking is, what does it look like for me to live in humility before God? Guys, you may not realize it, but every single one of us has the potential to live with what I call Nebuchadnezzar syndrome. You may not have a weird name like Nebuchadnezzar, but you have a tendency just like him. All of us by God's sovereign power, have been given a little K kingdom. All of us have been given the ability to make real choices every day in our life, to rule, in a sense, over our own little world. It may just be our home. It may just be our life. It may just be our heart. All of us have been given the ability to decide, to rule, to have dominion over a little K kingdom of our world. And we don't even realize most of the time that there's a potential for our heart to be just like Nebuchadnezzar's, a heart that wants to be in control, a heart that sees ourselves on the throne of our own little K kingdom. We can't stand the thought of not being in control. And the question should be, what does it look like for me to turn from a heart of Nebuchadnezzar syndrome to humility before the Lord? And that's where we'll go back to the verse that I pointed out earlier, verses 29 and 30. 
Look at Nebuchadnezzar's proud heart. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Do you see the two things that are at work there in pride? Nebuchadnezzar was proud because he was relying on his own power, and Nebuchadnezzar was proud because he was living for his own praise. That's what Nebuchadnezzar syndrome looks like. It looks like depending on your own power and living for your own praise. And then that teaches us what humility looks like. Humility then depends on God's power and lives for God's praise. And that's our application for this morning. When you bow in humility before God as your sovereign king, what does it look like? It looks like bowing before him by depending on his power and living for his praise. And I just want to close with those two things and just ask you, whose power are you depending on? Have you ever come to a point in your life where you realize that you do not have the power to live apart from the grace of God Have you ever come to the place in your life where you said, without him, I can do nothing but fail? Have you realized that if your life depends on your power and your ability to do things right, to get things right, to fix the things that are broken, you will not possibly succeed because you need God to do what only God can do. Friends, that's why we need Jesus Jesus came into this world to live and die in our place as a sacrifice for our sin so that we could be restored to God as our Father and united to Jesus as our source of strength. That in his resurrection, he'd raise us up to live a brand new kind of life. So the question is, are you depending on the power of Jesus to live in your life or are you depending on the power of you? I'll tell you a really good little test that you can take. You're walking through something today. I know you are. We all are. You're walking through something today that you need to fix, a thing that feels broken, a thing that feels overwhelming. And one of the first questions that you're going to ask is either, what do I need to do? What am I going to do? Or what do I need God to do? And that's an indicator of where we are depending for power. And I'm not saying that there aren't things you'll need to do. Absolutely, God will use you to do things that he desires to do in you. But where's the source of your strength? Are you depending on Christ's power? Are you depending on your own? And if you're depending on your own, you are suffering from Nebuchadnezzar syndrome. And God is calling you to bow by saying, Jesus, I need you. Help me to believe I have you. Live in me by the power of your spirit. Humility depends on God's power and humility lives for God's praise. God, one of the great applications of this text this morning is to simply stop in your tracks and worship God. Just stop and worship God. When was the last time that you stopped and you simply said, praise you, God, that no matter how out of control this world seems, no matter how out of control my life feels, praise you, God, that you are in control. As you look back over your life, like Nebuchadnezzar, do you look back over your blessings and give God praise? Or do you look back over your life and say, look what I've done. Will you bow before him in praise? What about the things you're walking through today? Not only looking back, what if you looked around your life 
And you said, all of the things that I'm walking through, God, would you help my deepest desire in this situation to be for your glory? Let me ask you this. What would it change about your life today if whatever it is that you're walking through, you ask God to help you want and desire his glory to be displayed more than you getting your way? People who bow before a sovereign king live by his power for his glory. What would it change in your marriage or your parenting or your work and career if your greatest desire in those places in your life was to see God glorified and praised by the people around you more than seeing them praise you? For how great you are. Guys, may we learn this lesson from a lunatic king. God is sovereign and he will humble everyone who will not humble themselves. So may we live in humility before Jesus Christ as Lord by depending on his power and living for his praise. Would you bow your heads? Make your prayer with me. Father, I pray that with the 10,000 questions that go through my mind when I think of how you are sovereign over all, how much I don't understand and I can't conceive or reconcile certain things, I pray, Father, that as those questions come through our mind, that we would be careful, Lord, that you would help us to never deny the reality that you are God. There is none like you. You are in control and you are accomplishing all of your good purposes for all of your people, including us. And Lord, help us to live in humility before you. Father, for those who've never placed their faith and trust in Jesus, I pray that they would realize they do not have the power to live a life pleasing to you. They've already blown it. All of us have. We've all sinned and fallen short of your glory. Lord, I pray that people who've never trusted in Jesus right now would place their faith and trust in Jesus, acknowledging their sin and his sacrifice on the cross and his glorious resurrection, just calling on him, Jesus, save me. By your power, save me. You're my Lord, and I bow before you as king. Live in me, Jesus, live in me. And Father, I pray for those who are walking through the darkest seasons of their life. While there may be so much that isn't understood, And while our world may feel like it's in chaos all around us, God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to believe that our God is in control. Help us to depend on your power. Help us to live for your praise. Be glorified in us, Father. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.